This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. Actor, writer, and producer, David Koshner is well-known for his roles as Todd Packer on The Office and Champ Kine from Anchorman and Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. He currently plays Bill Lewis on ABC's The Goldbergs, and recently appeared on ABC's Bless This Mess, CBS's Superior Donuts, Showtime's Twin Peaks, Comedy Central's Another Period, and IFC's Stand Against Evil. David also voices reoccurring characters on Fox's American Dad and Netflix's F is for Family and The Epic Tales of Captain Underpants. An alumnus of Chicago's Second City Theater, David got his first break as a cast member on Saturday Night Live and has since become an instantly recognizable face, appearing in more than 190 films and television shows. When not filming, David performs live stand-up comedy across the country. Welcome to the show, David Koshner. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we actually have a Hollywood actor joining us. It's a different uh, a different episode, uh, but it's going to be a great one. Uh, David Koshner is joining us. David, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, Michael. It's great to see you again too. And I and I really am glad because I've been talking. Uh, you know, you're in the. You come from the. I guess you've done live as well, but you've done a lot of TV, a lot of film, uh, and we lawyers are having to adjust uh, from yeah. having a a live presentation in person where we've actually worked with a lot of theater people on connecting with an audience to now it looks like we're going to be doing things through zoom and over cameras. Uh, and so I really appreciate you talking to us about how to communicate uh, with other human beings through this medium over of being on a screen and not being able to get the instant feedback and eye contact. Yeah. Cause in the, in the courtroom there, is a chemical reaction. There's a lot happening. Um, it's, it'll be interesting, my guess is, because you'll also not be subjected to some of the chemical reactors that could potentially throw a case one way or the other. It, it, it might just come down to, well, this, these are the facts. So are they going to do trials uh, via Zoom? You know, uh, they just did one. They just had a gigantic verdict this week uh, and a trial done by Zoom in Florida. Uh, on a truck crash case. Uh, uh, we're doing one. It's not all by Zoom. Uh, so we will be in a big courtroom with the jurors all spread out and everyone wearing masks. So we'll be in the courtroom with the jurors, but the witnesses will be mostly testifying either by Zoom or pre-recorded videos. Uh, 
Uh, and so it's it's a different way of communicating. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be wearing masks, so you lose a lot of facial expression. Yeah. Uh, we're having people that are a lot more spread out, so where to stand, how to stand, how to not box out part of your audience. All these things are uh, new to me, and I, you know, since you have worked such bigger audiences than I have, um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your wisdom. Wow. Uh, it's not often that the word wisdom is associated <laughs> with me, but I'll do my best. <laughs> you know, to, to be consistently funny takes a lot more smarts and skill, I think, than people think it does. Uh, I agree. I agree. It, yeah. I, I have a, a wife and children who tell me I fail miserably at it all the time. Well, that's the, the best and worst audience always. Um, and of course, the biggest win is when you actually get a laugh. Uh, they couldn't help it. You're like, yes, because I'll swing at anything. And I'll yeah. swing a hundred times. And then if I, on 101, I got a laugh. I'm like, yeah, it all paid off. Even if I had to exhaust them, I'll still take it. My wife's like, I can't believe I married someone who would think that was funny. There's <laughs> like something really wrong with you. <laughs> so. You think that or your wife will think that? No, she thinks that about me. Like, how yeah. how could you find that humorous? That is disgusting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Delisi, and I think you'll you'll uh, agree to this. All men are fourteen, and um, if you find one that's uh, mature, actually to the age of fifteen, you're like, okay, I'll take that one. Or they're just hiding it. It'll come out. It'll come out. <laughs> yeah, it'll come out. <laughs> God bless all women for taking on the task of whatever we are, right, Michael? You know, uh, my wife is a saint. Sometimes I just leave it at that. I'm, none of us are perfect, but. I don't think you have to, I don't think you need the qualifier. <laughs> All times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let, let me get a little bit, a bit of background on you. Uh, so, you know, we, I've seen you on TV. I've seen you at the movies. Uh, what is your story? How did you get into comedy or acting? Well, of course, like, like most people do, I was a political science major. Oh, really? Yeah. So I am from a very small town in central Missouri. By now, uh, most of the country is well acquainted uh, with the Lake of the Ozarks, but not necessarily for positive reasons. But geographically, I'm a half. I was I grew up a half a mile north. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Half an hour north of the Lake of the Ozarks. So really central Missouri and a very small town. My father was a manufacturer of livestock trailers. Um uh, for turkeys. I have to always say it that way. Cause if I say turkey coops, people go, Oh, like in your backyard, like, haha, not funny. Okay. Goofball. No livestock transportation vehicles for, for turkeys. If you've ever, you guys are in Texas, you know, Natchitoches, Texas is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bright coop company is the only other uh, turkey coop company uh, in the country. So that would, they were always the ones that they were our competitor, our local <laughs> competitor. So, that's why I know where Nacogdoches is and how to say Nacogdoches. Anyway, so I started working for my father when I was seven years old, which I think probably figures in uh, mightily when it came to my career. Uh, you know, in a small town where most people are farmers, my father grew up on a farm. His father was a farmer. You, you just start working. Like, so my dad made me start working at seven. He probably gave me a break because I think he started working at the age of four. So anyway, <clears throat> I've never been unemployed in my life. And I mean, you know, that's all owed to my father. It's a great work ethic. And so you just figure it out and you do it. 
Um, and being in a small town, you don't like, I'd never met an actor. I, I, I did want to be an actor before I went to college. I'd never met one. I didn't know how a person went about doing it. And for, for your audience, of course, a lot of younger people, this is before the internet. So it's not like just readily available. Um, and you know, when you're at a place like that, you know, I grew up with three television stations. So it's not like we have this exposure to information like we do now. Like literally you can know anything. Like if, 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 if you don't know the answer to something, you're just not trying at all. <clears throat> or these days you think, you know, the answer to something and it's just completely wrong because you yeah. didn't try to dig deeper. But so I, uh, I'd always loved politics and about in seventh grade, uh, two things happened in seventh grade. I realized I loved politics and I thought I want to do that. But at the same time, I saw my cousin in a play the, local, the, the the high school play, they did, there was one play in town a year put on by the high school to tell you the cultural scene I was growing up in. And I saw her doing, I was like, oh my God, that's what I'd like to do. So in a way, one could say that politics and acting, much like lawyering, are, are, are co-joined in, in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I, you know, it didn't cross my mind that I could ever be an acting major so I, I chose political science. And after a couple of years in, about three years in, and maybe you remember, I don't know, what was your major? Uh, psychology. I was political science for a semester and then I switched. I love it. We're the same girl. So about the third year, uh, I was realizing, oh, because I'm from a small town, I thought political office was in my future. Not realizing the odds and the difficulty of anyone getting political office. At about that year, I started realizing like, oh, oh, hey, 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 small town boy, it ain't happening for you. Because what I've seen at that point, I thought to be in politics, either come from a political family, you're incredibly wealthy, or you're the smartest person in any room you walk into. I was none of those things. So I just quit going to school. And my father said, well, Dave, I don't know what you want to do, but I don't think you want to go to school. Because I, I, I'd failed out. You know, I was academically ineligible. And that's the best Cecil Cutler impression you're ever going to hear, by the way. <laughs> and um, so I kicked around Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is uh, for a year. I was working three jobs and I'd always been a fan of Second City because I knew a lot of people from Second City had gone to Saturday Night Live. <clears throat> so a buddy and I took a, a road trip up to Second City, uh, saw the show. And I mean, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. So I, there's they had a poster for classes. I wrote down the number, went back home. Came back, I don't know, that summer, because I knew we went in the winter. I came back that summer for a two-week course, and that really solidified in my mind, in my heart, I guess I should say in my soul, this is what I'm going to do. So I was back in Columbia, working three jobs again to save up my money, to move to Chicago, and then I started taking classes. So I started classes at the Second City and a place called the I.O. simultaneously. And then for the next nine years, I was literally on stage uh, four nights a week, at least. So wow. I'm sure you're familiar with the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. 10,000 hours. Yep. You put your 10. So I definitely did that. And I happened to be in Chicago at a very magical time, wherein uh, a lot of the people we all know today, I worked with back there in Chicago, from Steve Carell to Steve Colbert to Tina Fey to Amy Poehler to Adam McKay, who wrote and directed Anchorman, to uh, Andy Richter, to, from uh, Conan to, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And it, it really was a real uh, profound time to be there, which I don't think has been matched 
before or since that you had this deep a talent pool happen to all be there, a, a confluence of talent that probably has never been seen before or since. And I, 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 was, I was interviewed by a, uh, uh, an, uh, a writer recently, and what I think happened was, so in 1975, I was 13. So in 1986, <clears throat> I had just turned 24. And that's when I moved to Chicago. So a lot of people just like myself were coming of age then and had either, you know, just gotten out of college and thought, what's next? And then thought, I'm going to go do this thing I always wanted to do. And we all happened to land there at the same time. And I think that really probably if, when you do the, uh, you know, Freakonomics, that book yeah. too, right? I think you, you could easily trace that back. Everyone went, oh my God, Second City, Saturday Night Live, we'll go there. And it happened. Now, why didn't it continue? I believe because people then, then want a shortcut. They don't start mm -hmm. looking about the, the, they're not looking at the work. They're looking like, oh, he get there then. I'll just do this and I'll go somewhere. I will say that for most of the people that I came up with, it was not about, oh, I want fame. It really was about, I want to be good. And there's a big difference. And now I think we all see that. And maybe you see it in your profession too. Absolutely. You have to pay your dues. You have to go try a bunch of tough, crappy little cases uh, and hone your craft and get those 10,000 hours in the courtroom before you can handle the big stage. Uh, at least you can get lucky, but to do it well over and over again, you just have to put in the practice. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, people say luck. I, I, I don't, I don't see it. And of course they say luck is when, when, when preparation and opportunity collide, but um yeah, it's about hard work, really, isn't it? It's about hard work. It's about working hard and being there to take the opportunities because you're, you know, you, there is. Yeah. I think there's some luck involved because you need to be. But if you're not out there, if you're not putting in the work, if you're not prepared to to run with it when you get it, then it doesn't matter. But also, like you said, take the opportunity. So I have friends in show business that are very talented that you don't know. They haven't taken the opportunity. Or they, they just, I hate to say, they don't show up on the day or right. they, don't, they don't demand of themselves to push through that one hard moment or that next step. That a lot of times they might not even see it. You know, It's almost like you're in the room, all the doors are open, and they keep going to the door that's locked. And so you're like, no, it's right there. It's like, well, I'm not ready for that door yet. Like, okay. And that is a mental game. I mean, it happens in every profession, but certainly in yours too. If you're not ready, if you're never ready up here, then you're not ready. It's not going to happen. Absolutely. So Second City, uh, from where, what was your next? And that's, that's already a, a giant break. Uh, yeah. What was your next break from there? I got Saturday Night Live. Yeah. yeah. I was hired from Second City to Saturday Night Live. And I got there. Now this, go, now this next speaks to not, not knowing what you want. So when I got Saturday Night Live, I had already decided I was not going to stay there six years. This, the contract you sign is a six-year contract. And in my mind, I had already decided I'm going to stay here three years and go, wow. which, which is not a great uh, way to connect with the universe and infinity because they do hear you and go, we heard you wanted out. So we're going to let you go. I wasn't very so. The irony of being a political science major, I was not very good politically. Uh, <laughs> Irish say, "I don't suffer fools gladly," and so when I saw things on the show that I 
didn't care for, I didn't, I didn't hold my tongue. Or when they, they would sometimes come to me and say, hey, why don't you do this or so, that with that character? And I would say, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> and it was. Um, but they, I think, you know, some of the people thought, well, he's being a bit resistant. And this was the, the, the year I was on. It was the first year that there was uh, Mad TV and Howard Stern had a late night show. <clears throat> so it was the first time they had competition in late night. And the network had a little bit more leverage over Lauren Michaels than normal. And so they said there's going to be changes. And I was one of them. Uh, Lauren wanted to keep me, actually. But the network had more power at that time. Now, yeah. Lauren Michaels owns all of late night, you know, so you can't tell him anything. He's got the, you know, the Jimmy Fallon show and he's, he's got the Tonight Show and the Seth Meyers show. I so. No there ain't no push. Yeah, he produced those now. There ain't no push on that. But anyway, <clears throat> things worked out because within six months, I was uh, after I left the show. I was out in L.A. I had a, a talent holding deal. Uh, I met uh, the woman who was going to be my wife, and then, <clears throat> um, you know, all things uh, marriages. I think only last twenty years, right? <laughs> I hope not. I've, I've already gone past that. So, God bless you. <clears throat> anyway, so. Um, so that happened. And then, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. And all these steps that happened did set me up to be in a, in a wonderful place where I have just I've worked consistently uh, since I since I started. Uh, so I guess since since I got my first television job, I've worked consistently. One thing you've done well is you've been able to take an outrageous character, but make it real you don't look like a person who's pretending to be an outrageous character. What are some tips for, how do you, how do you, how do you get into it? How do you? Well, well, first of all, I appreciate you saying that. And it's because you decide to do that. Me personally, um, I feel like, so let's take my, my two most famous ones. So it's Todd Packer and Champ Kind. Number one, they're horrible human beings. Like if you knew them, you go, no, thank you. I, I can't be around that. But really at their core, what's going on? They're desperate people. They're desperate for love. They're in pain, but they won't even look at their own pain. And so they're, all, they're acting out here, all of these places outside of themselves to help try to define themselves, even if it means they're doing negative behavior that they don't even know that's negative to attract attention. At least they've got something. So I see these people who with a, a you know, with deep pathos and I love pathos, you know, the deep, dark pain inside, I believe, like, so we all have a commonality of pain. So if through that type of work, I can tap into something that the audience recognizes, like, there for, you know, uh, uh, there for the, the grace of God go I, that, that we can go, oh, that guy's in trouble, at least I'm not like that. But at the same time, for me, I like to uh, enhance the idea of like, that's a bad person. It might be funny to laugh at, but remember, it's a cautionary tale, too. We're all laughing at him. But remember, he's in pain. You don't have to make bad choices and bad decisions. But that person does. So we can laugh at that. But also, we know we're not going to act like that. Yeah. Just a short answer. No, I, I love it. Because, you know, part of what, what we have to do is, you know, in the courtroom, sometimes our own clients aren't lovable uh, and, yeah. and, and they act in ways uh, especially a lot of my clients have brain injuries and yeah. if you have a frontal lobe brain injury uh, you know the client I'm getting ready for a trial in November and my client has a frontal lobe brain injury and it makes him hard to like sometimes uh, and you know so you have I have to to 
love the part of him that was there before he was hurt. I have to, I have to remember, like, it's not him that's saying this. It's the brain trauma that's saying this. And, you know, it's not his, you know, it's not him and, and not and not taking it personally. And, and, you know, Jerry Spence, who was a very famous trial lawyer, uh, one of my mentors, is like, you know, if everyone's almost everyone's mother loves them. So if you can find no matter how unlikable the same what their mother loved, you know, you can you can you can love them, too. Um, that's interesting. So now can, can you introduce that information at trial that my client has suffered a major brain injury? Yeah, the whole case is about this brain injury. It's about the, the truck that hit his car and, and caused him to suffer the brain injury. So that's what it's about. But, you know, I've been, this case has been dragging on. So I've been, you know, living with him for three years. And so I, you know, you feel for him, but you also get the, the annoyance of dealing with people that do crazy things, that say crazy things, that, you know, it's yeah, just, uh, yeah. And as a dad, like, oh, you're not a child. You can't make these bad choices. But then it's not within their power. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, when you're playing, let's say, like I say, a character who's not a nice person, do you, when you're getting into role, do you find, you know, what there is to love about them? Or do you just go all in with they're not? Well, like I said before, you find the humanity, just like you uh -huh. said. You find the humanity and you present that. You know, John Goodman is another guy from Missouri. And uh, I, he's one of my favorite actors. And what I watch when I see him, I see him advocating for his character. That's what uh -huh. I see. Almost like a lawyer. Like I'm putting on this character's case. And there it is. And because that's, they have to live and this is how they do it. So you're almost making a defensible case for that person, for that character. So yeah. there's the point of that's there too, yeah. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. Another thing I want to ask, you know, you have an awesome voice. Uh, you have a very, <laughs> a strong, uh, a strong voice that it's very recognizable. And, you know, I'm getting ready to try a case with a mask on. Uh, so I lose a lot of facial expressions and then I don't have, all the movement I normally get to have because I have, for safety restrictions, I can't get too close to people. I'm, I'm gonna have to stay in a fairly narrow area. Uh, so I really wanna work on the voice. Are, are there anything you've done to, to develop that voice and anything you do before you perform to? Well, it goes back to, like you said, the 10,000 hours theory. Now this is a very you know peculiar time. And that now you're having to uh, you know play basketball while holding a brick. And it's just not fair because it, a lot of it is that communication. So my guess is a person like yourself, uh, you're going to be doing it in front of camera to figure out how you can be seen or heard and how you can't be seen or heard. Obviously, slowing things down is going to be a big part of it. 
Um, overchewing your words is my guess. I mean, what you tell me, what do you do? Do you guys practice on camera so you see what's working or not? We don't do enough of it. I mean, shockingly, uh, I was, I've told this before, but when I was a little kid and we did community theater, and so we were putting on a play that uh, only our parents and maybe our grandparents would ever watch once. We spent weeks rehearsing, but lawyers will go in there on these big cases that they've been working for years and they'll wing it or they'll just like do it in front of their partner the night before. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've done some work on camera. It's painful to do camera work and, and see yourself. And, uh, and you need to get, I find I can only do it if I have someone to coach me. I have to have someone walk me through it. I can't, I'm too self-critical. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, and it's, so are you doing it from the from the, the lawyer aspect? You're doing it as it. So do you do your opening argument on camera with the mask? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm doing. I'm actually going up to Portland, Oregon to work with uh, someone that works with people on nonverbal communication and other yeah. things. And we're going to go put me in front of a camera and I'm going to go do it over and over again. And then she's going to yep. go over the film with me and coach me on what's working, what's not working. And that's that separates you from other people. And that's what that's the difference. You you look, look at the tape. I mean, that's what our athletes do. Um, so, yeah, it serves all of us like what's working, what's not, especially because you're now, you know, a lot of your toolbox has been taken away. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I, 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 I applaud your uh, your your efforts in that regard. That's the exact thing to do. But I'll, I will ask you this. Please forgive yourself going into it. And don't think about, oh, I've got to look at myself. They're looking at you. So just look at what are the good stuff they're seeing. We're all too critical of ourselves, most of us. Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Delisi. That's You're one in whatever, one in <laughs> Delisi. But, um, yeah, you'll see it. Don't be too hard on yourself and take the wins. Take the wins. Make the small adjustments. You I just want to add, though, Michael, you have been practicing in front of the camera. He has been working with a consultant who has told him to do that. So sometimes when he speaks, I'll videotape and okay. he'll watch it with her. So when he does do that, he improves and notices things. And I've noticed that, too. Um, that's great. I, I, my guess is articulation is number one with the mask. But also, Michael. You know, when it, when we watch movies and you're looking, so think of it, it's a, a wide shot, right? Not the close-up, because the close-up's taken away in this regard because you got the mask. The wide shot. You can still slow things down and slow everything down. No flourish, the movement, the purpose. I'm sure you guys, you, you people, the royal guys, uh, you, I'm sure you go through pointing to how do you hold your hand, all those things. We work uh, on it, but you'd be surprised how little training we have on it. We have to go find people from the acting and communications world to teach. They don't teach that stuff in law school. Uh, oh, they teach we you how to be a really a side gig, David. They they <laughs> teach you how to be a really boring communicator. It's it's wow, amazing. We go to these seminars, and some people are like these are people who are supposed to speak persuasively for a living and you're like falling asleep and wow, come on. <laughs> That's inexcusable. Um, yeah. But I would think now that you're faced with these obstacles, okay, then, then maybe you break down the obstacles and then how do you overcome them one by one rather than all at once? Cause you can't. Um, so number one is going to be just the articulation through the mask 
Um, like you said, you don't want to be boring. Uh, so you don't want to take too many pauses. So maybe you do have to you find the, 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 the grace notes of what the body gives for communication. I don't know. I mean, your, your, your job is so specific and you have to make sure you maintain a certain uh, uh, elegance and, and dominance at the same time and an emphatic way to, to change that one last mind on, in the jury box. And, and who knows? I mean, look, we're all humans. For some reason, you might just not like somebody. And that's just going to be the way it is. And maybe that's the challenge. Maybe well, never. And for us, it's, it's a compelling story. And so if you know, you don't have to have a perfect protagonist if you have a compelling story. Right. Um, although trials are different because the protagonists of our stories are actually the jurors. Wow. It's their story that we're trying to create uh, live in the courtroom because they're the only ones with any power. They're the only ones that can do something. So we have to create something that that. We have to complete a story that doesn't isn't quite over yet, and they they have that act hunger to come in there and do the right thing and to be the heroes of the, of the story at the end of the day. I hear you. So you're creating a narrative. How do I sell the narrative? How do I support support, support the narrative I have created? So, well, there you go. At least at least you've got uh, uh, <clears throat> a pathway. It's not as if it's never been done before. It's just been never been done this way before. Yeah. Masked and yeah, and, and limited. Uh, and so I was, you know, you've you've done you know, second study. You've been on stage quite a bit, and yeah. you know, you've got. So that's you know not like the intimate conversation. Me and twelve people five feet apart from each other, uh, and but it's still you're there live. It's an interactive experience. You feel the crowd when you, I'm sure when you're up on stage. As far as gestures and blocking and where you position yourself, how do you make the whole crowd feel part of the experience when you're speak, when you're there with that larger audience like you did on SNL or Second City? Well, uh, you, you know, yours is a different thing in that you are talking directly to them and you're trying to give them the truth as you see it. Right. So those are the two things that are in common. And so when I'm acting on stage, I'm this way, hoping that they're – they're being pulled into it emotionally and that the story supports their interest. Like yeah. you said, so that's things that, you know, are in your toolbox. Like if, if I'm, if I'm in a bad movie, there's nothing I can do but rely on what I have. And I have been fortunate enough that, okay, even sometimes you can take something that maybe ain't so good, but you're just going to do your darndest to make it the best you can do. And one of the things I remember very early on was I, I thought to myself, I never want to be a one note actor, you know, and as much as people might think, oh, he does the same thing to me. No, no, I'm doing I'm doing fractions up there. I really am. And you know where you want it to land, because as an actor, you have an intention. The only way I can get somewhere is I intend to do this. You can't do a line reading. It will never serve. You. It will just fall flat. It's not truthful. There's no purpose behind it. There's no honesty. There's no connection to yourself. So I guess to answer the question would be, what's the connection that you have to the story? Like you said, that you have these uh, um, people you're advocating for and, you know, you, you do care and it. You, you, you are in their corner and things are at stake. And so if you have that belief and that knowing inside you, that's the compelling part of it. You're not just walking through it because that would be malpractice, wouldn't it? 
Same for actors. It's malpractice to get up there and not having done your work. Now, sometimes we have lawyers, actors, doctors, God bless us, that aren't good, but they, they keep getting hired. So we can only control what we do and those we hire. Yeah, I think, you know, the public has no idea whether a lawyer is good or not, just by probably some directors don't know if that's good or not. Or, you know, it might, it, it, what we might consider good doesn't really matter. Is it enough or does it have a certain appeal that works? Right. There are a lot of pretty people in Hollywood that might not have that skill set to be an actor, but they're pleasing to look at. And so there you go. Okay. But in the end, that just doesn't last. Yeah. So one of the things I was taught to do, and I wasn't taught why to do it. Uh, I've, I've heard a lot about the role of three, doing things in three. You know, um, have you learned anything about the role of three on, on the acting end? Well, it's, it's for comedy. The rule of th threes, something gets introduced once as an idea. It gets used another way uh, uh, later in the story. And then the third time you hear it, then there's the laugh. So you're kind of setting things up. And it's almost like a triangle, I guess. Uh -huh. You set it up three, three different ways, and then it, it lands home. Now, you're probably thinking about a rule of threes for emphasis. Now, and, and uh, you know, you can't just keep doing that. You know, because if I said, will you listen to me? Will you listen to me? Will you listen to me now? Okay, great. I got your attention. But if I keep doing that the whole trial, they're like, right. oh, God, please, will you just say it? <laughs> but I would think if you introduce an idea early in the piece and then in the middle and at the end, boom, there it is again. It's just like good storytelling, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I've been, you know, I'm so glad you're on here because I've been preaching to my people that we need to, we need to learn uh, from, you know, people are saying, Oh, you can't tell a trial. You can't emotionally connect with people in, in, in a zoom trial. And I'm like, I watched a 30 minute TV show and that's not 30 minutes of TV. That's probably 24 minutes of TV and six minutes of commercials, you know, at least. And I'm in moved. I'm tearful. I am mad. I am pleased and laughed. I mean, I am making an emotional connection. You know, I watched Alec McBeal or uh, what song was Shatner? Uh, Boston Legal. Boston Legal. And and they would do these, you know, <laughs> one minute, minute and a half closing arguments and you feel compelled to do something. So, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's all over a screen and that's all, you know, made up stuff. Uh, it's all fiction. It always comes back to attention to detail and the connection is the detail you have in your heart. And then in like, so if we look at this kid here, Delici, right? I say Delici. Um, but this kid happens to have a golden heart and it comes through her face. That's, it's not something she's faking. It's just who she is as a person. So it resonates out. Right. And her intention is just to be as good a person as she can be. And it shows there's no acting there. Sorry, Delisi. Flattering compliment. Thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's the truth, right? So if you're a good person, it's going to shine through, especially like that on a Zoom. So at least you have this. Um, and I guess you're, you're going to just have to keep learning because we don't always look at our, our, the person we're talking to in the eye. So maybe there has to be that learning curve too. It was like, do I look at the camera? Do I look at the other people on the Zoom? Do I make sure I'm intentional about not being too busy back here. This this chair I've noticed squeaks a little bit. I don't want to use that. Um, what's my background? All those things that don't normally play, you have to do 
the attention to detail again. And then I guess just be honest and true, which I have a hard time because I haven't had a truthful moment in my life. I don't know who I am. (laughs) You're right, though. All those things when you have to pay attention to detail are really important now. Because when we're doing anything virtually, we're thinking, what's our background? What's our lighting? How do we sound? Um, And then for Michael, I know if I put a podium in front of him, he's going to hate it because he likes to move around. So if he's going to have to do anything on camera, we have to make sure he has the ability to move because he likes to use his body and nonverbals and feel that connection through his body and his voice. Interesting. So now you have this idea, like, what do you do? Do I do just the headshot? Do I do a medium shot? It's called like, this is called a cowboy or a full body shot. And then right like that, what's most effective? Because if I'm here moving around a lot, it's going to be distracting. So if I know that I can't stop moving a lot, then I need to place my medium in a place where it's going to be most effective for those watching and for myself. Wow. So you that, but it's a steep curve because it's quick. Yeah. And if I'm going to move around, I got to get a cameraman. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. And then I got to think about, you know, nobody just wants to look at a talking head for six hours a day. So what, you know, what, how do I mix up the shot? You know, can I mix up shots? Can I mix in visuals? Uh, how do we keep it entertaining? Right. Yeah. Well, at least you're thinking about it. You're not, you're not winging it. You're preparing for the thing you're about to do in a different way. Well, that's, that that's the difference. Those that don't simply won't succeed. Yeah. Or maybe they'll learn like that. Yeah. We are all learning here from, from which computer works better or not like that earlier. I had headphones in thinking, is that the best way to make sure I'm seen and heard? And then I took them out of you. Oh no, that's much better. There are also these types of microphones that you could purchase to use. I'm sure you guys have a uh, audio visual department anyway, that's going to coach you and give you all the best equipment. So who knows that could make the difference, right? Yeah. If your zoom link goes down, the the and 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 the other person's never goes down. The the jury might be thinking, oh, they weren't as good. Like all those things factor in like never before. I have a question, David. So Michael's going to be doing a jury trial where there's social distancing and he has his masks on. Um, but since people can't see his face. Yeah. What um, tips do you have for kind of warming up your body and using your body as an instrument and not just your voice, since that's a little, I mean, we're going to have a mask on, so it's going to be different. I'm thinking about how does he do that in a court spaced out or how does he do that in a stadium where he's going to have to pick a jury and the Houston Texans play? How do you use your body in a space that big um, in this time? Okay, so two questions. Number one, in the courtroom, I would start watching, uh, just really observing people wearing masks right now, Michael. I don't care where they are. And you'll see when people are calm and purposeful and they know they're right, or people that are agitated and nervous and anxious and how that's going to affect the jury. That's in a smaller setting. And I would practice in front of the mirror with the mask. Because, you know, if you stop, you can you can project emotion from your body. You know, my shoulders are up, my shoulders are down. Now it means I'm more into what I feel I need to say, right? Now, if I go like this and I need to say this, I might not be as believable. Now, it might work if I had 
this face I could use. And these were supporting it. But now I got the mask and I'm doing this. It looks maybe threatening or certainly not pleasing. So it's, it might be those smaller little movements in the course of the trial at the place that makes the difference. Now, what's this about selecting jurors at a stadium? Yeah, we'll have 160 people at the it's the stadium, the NFL stadium. So they're going to put them in the like the bleachers that stands so that everybody can be 10 feet apart from each other. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll be having to and I'm, I'm trying to form a group uh, with the 12 or 14 that will be there. So I'm trying right. to uh, make all 165 people feel like we're all here together <laughs> uh, when we have to sit apart. I guess you would you would slowly pace from one part to the other, keep uh, checking you know, the highest to the middle to the lowest to right here. And then you'll notice when I'm talking to someone here, as opposed to talking and make sure you're addressing the whole uh, 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 entire audience and you will change your, your movements here or there. But, you know, whether your movement up there, it has to be more uh, uh, intentional and ex land exactly where you want it to go. Now here it could be, I might be addressing several people down here, but if I'm addressing, you know, people up here, yeah, I think you have to be, you have to pick your, it's like you're, since you're in a stadium, let's use that metaphor. Yeah. You got to know where the ball's landing, where are you throwing the ball? Yeah. You need to know who you're talking to. Yeah. But then you don't want to make, you don't want everyone else to feel left out either. When you're okay. having a conversation with the person I, up close. I would suggest this then. You'll be you'll have access to the space a day before. Mm, probably not. I, I'm going to be able to look at it online uh, to see Can the. Can you get there an hour or two before anybody else? Yeah, no, I will definitely be there before anybody else. Here's what I would say: I want you to go up in the stadium, in the bleachers. I want you to sit in four or five places uh, where they're going to be, and have somebody down below address you, and then you'll know what lands and what doesn't. Perfect. That's a great idea. <laughs> what do you know? Everyone's wild. The old, the old no, boy. that's a great idea. <laughs> well, this now see when I go do it, like so, you know, I do stand up as well. What I'll do sometimes, or oftentimes, if it's a new club I've never been in, I will. We we'll do a sound check an hour before before the audience is let in. You do your sound check. Sound guy goes okay. Then I'll have either my opening act or somebody else be on mic, and then I'll try and walk around the room to see what plays. How does it play here to there to there? Because the sight lines are different. It's kind of the same thing you're dealing with, you know, because obviously I'm very physical. So um, if I, I do have some jokes that might depend on the physicality, and I know if I just do the joke this way, the audience over here is not going to get it. Yeah, so you exactly. oh, I need to make my point here, and I need to make my point here. So, Yeah. I guess get acquainted with the room would have been a shorter way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And though at least the, the courtroom, at least they're going to let us go in and see how it's there. And that's usually something I do. I sit, I sit with the jurors are going to sit. I make sure that we can see things. Uh, but it's, we really uh, are the same girl, aren't we, Michael? You know, it really is. It's very similar. In fact, a lot of the consultants we use were people that, that went into acting and just didn't get hired a lot as an actor. Uh, and then, uh, then they go teach us what, you know, the skills they learned. Yeah. Sometimes you, you don't, you might, you don't know where your skill set is best going to serve. You might've wanted to be an actor, but it may be, it turned out you're a great teacher. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're both storytellers. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're part of it. Yeah. What's your part in the narrative, I guess, would be the, our, our theme today. And how do we physically, mentally, emotionally uh, succeed in, 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 in creating a narrative, first of all, that's workable? And then how do you uh, communicate it in a, in a, with hurdles? But I always think this, uh, there's always an answer. The joy is in finding it. Because we can go, oh, I need an answer to this, and I can spend some time with some consternation of why me, and I shouldn't have to, and this isn't my fault, and somebody else didn't do their job, and blah, blah, blah. Well, so what? You still need an answer. Yep. So you're better off having the joy and finding the answer, because then when you have it, you don't miss it. You're like, oh, there's the answer, because you were looking for it, rather than stumbling upon it. One thing, you know, I, I know that when you act, uh, you, you rehearse a lot. Uh, when you do stand-up, you do the same jokes over and over again. But then to be good, uh, to be effective, to, to transfer energy and emotion to your audience, you have to be in the moment as if you're living it for the first time. How do you do that? How do you get in that zone in that moment with something you've rehearsed so many times before? I think that's the, the point is rehearse. Because if you're rehearsed, now you're fully present and available. Because you're not searching. You're here. You're present. Because if I know my lines, I have the, uh, the potential for more discovery. If I don't quite know my lines, then my discovery is hoping I remember my lines. Ah. So it's not going to be quite as good. But if I'm locked down rehearsal-wise, then I'm open to true discovery now that I might not have known before. And it comes to you. Because what you're supposed to do as an actor is listen. Now, Oftentimes, actors like, uh-huh, 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 your lips stop moving. It must be my turn to talk. So we're not really living in the moment. So if we can get to that place when we're actually present, and the, the, then the camera can catch, capture that, right? Chemical reaction. And maybe you didn't even know that discovery is going to happen while you're talking to somebody. Because if we really listen, we can be in discovery. If we don't really listen, then we're just, <laughs> it's a one-way street, right? Yeah. And you can you give any examples of anything in you know, any of the shows or movies you've been in that maybe wasn't fully scripted, but because you were in the moment and you, you know, you knew it so cold and you were experiencing it as if you were that person, it, it came out and something magic happened. Um, well, yes. Uh, yes. Um, I, I will say there's, uh, I'll say an anchorman, for instance, you know, your lines, but we also know because we are all a group of improvisers, Adam McKay, I came up with him in Chicago. So he started as an improviser, an actor. And then I knew Will from Saturday Night Live. He started as an improviser actor. Paul Rudd, I didn't know as well, but he'd done quite a bit of improvising. And Steve Carell, I'd known for a very long time. And he came up as an improviser. So it's interesting because as an actor, um, you're supposed to find the conflict in the scene and win the scene, if you will. For comedy, it's a little bit different, but you know, comedy is conflict uh, that surprises you in a different way, a different answer you thought was going to happen. So because we all knew we were all adept at improvising, what we would do on that show, we'd, we'd do the scene three or four times, filming it, right? And then McKay would say, let's let the squirrel out of the bag, which means now we're going to improvise. So you're supposed to be listening anyway as an actor, really listening and hanging on the words of the other person. Now we're gonna improvise, I don't know what's going to be said. So I damn sure better be listening now. Yeah. Because now either A, I want to have an opportunity. 
something else, something ethereal happening in that movie that seemed like, wow, there seems to be more than just this scene being done. And I do believe it's because we would improvise every scene, even though we shot it, we'd also be doing some improvisation. So it kind of puts your head and your whole spirit in a different gear. Wow. Can you, can you give an example of any scene like that where something magic happened? Um, it's interesting because when people go, hey, what was improvised? What wasn't in wow. that scene? There was, I'd have to go line by line through the script because oh, sometimes it would be half a line was scripted and then half a line was improvised. For instance, uh, one of mine was, um, I will, I will, I will take your mother, Dorothy Mantooth, out for a nice seafood dinner and never yeah. call her again. I think the original line was, um, I will tie your mother, Dorothy Mantooth, up on a, a, to a chair and drive golf balls at her. Now, that's very cruel, though it's, it might sound funny. It's pretty dark. So we were playing with that line, and I was talking to Corell about it, too. And he had some thoughts. Now, see... I would have never come up with seafood dinner because I'm from Missouri. <laughs> Carell's from, uh, from uh, Acton outside of Boston. They, you know, seafood. So, but for, to, add the, to add the specificity of the insult of I'll take your mother out for a nice seafood dinner, right? And never call her again adds another level of ridiculousness, but it's so specific that it makes the difference in the, in the, in the line. So I know he and I had talked about it a little bit. And I think when, when at the time that we had an opportunity to do it, it just came out adding several elements together. So there was some preparation and you kind of like just go, okay, what's going to come down the hopper now? And then that's the one that works. Another thing I've been struggling with is, you know, we, we spent all this time learning to speak and learning how to speak, but learning when to let silence hang I don't know a thing about that. <laughs> I think you don't give yourself enough credit, Michael, because I think you do a really good job of that. Well, I'm I working really on do. It, when I, I talk you? to you, you do a good job of just taking a moment and letting that moment be there before either someone else says something or you should respond. And when you do that, I know you're listening. Yeah, because I used to just talk a mile a minute and you know nobody could keep up with me. Because uh, I, what I had to say was so important, and, and learning when to use that dramatic pause. And it wasn't. It wasn't about the, the the interesting part is maybe that you 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 earnestly wanted to get this information across. Yeah. It wasn't about saying I want to leave no room for anyone else to talk. It's like I really want to make sure they get this point. But I guess the idea is I, I do have to make sure not only that I'm listening that they're listening. And if I don't check in, then I don't have the listening. We've all got kids. And really, what does any human being want? We want to be seen and heard, don't we? And you look at your kids and you look them right in the eye. It makes a difference. If you really listen, because how often as, as parents do we go, just a minute. Yeah. You know, we say stuff to our family that we'd never say to our friends. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's so, yeah, it's that thing of what's important now and how can I make sure that you're important? And of course, it is with listening. If, if I'm being listened to, then I feel like, okay, I have some worth. Yeah. And the other thing I've learned that's helped me slow down, one, it's about the audience. It's not about, it's not about what I have to say. It's about what they hear. 
Nice. And then it's about trusting them. It's about you're here to do the right thing. And so if I trust you and I give you the tools, you're going to do the right thing. Now there's times that what you think is right isn't what I wanted you to do, but you know, that's, that's fine. <laughs> you know? Uh, but I, I can't control other people. And, 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 and I've, when I've stopped trying, uh, and so instead of saying, how am I going to win this trial? It's like, how am I going to tell the story? How am I going to communicate? I, I can't win. I, I don't have that power. Right. I can't go there and, you know, tie up the juror's daughter in the basement and wait for, you know, uh, Not anymore. yeah, no. Yeah. And so like just it, like it, what I think also in what you're saying is showing respect. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you give that respect, if you let that audience or the jury know that you're respecting their wishes and their intelligence and them to do the right, uh, make the right choice, that will that will come across. And anything similar with like when you're doing stand up, stand up so interactive. Um, mm -hmm. Anything with how you approach that audience mentally, you know, get yourself mentally to. Well, if you're doing your your hour long act, let's say uh, most comics are doing their their scripted act. You you leave room for some um, play, some improvisation, for some magic to happen. And every comic's different. So if you're a one-liner comic, you're less apt to improvise. You know, set up, set up, punchline, set up. Um, I'm more of a storyteller. And so sometimes there might be a discovery there that you didn't know. You might find a new joke. You know, you might have your five jokes in this particular chunk but then you're like, oh, my God, I just thought of another one. And it comes comes out. So you're engaged with yourself and the audience, because like you said, the audience is going to let you know how you're doing right away. Yeah. You know, if you're going five minutes and you <laughs> haven't heard a laugh. You're not doing something right. I think you're lucky, David, because you get to hear their laughs. But when you're in the courtroom and the jurors don't get to make as many noises. Right. It's a little more difficult. <laughs> no, but when you're doing it right, you feel it. Yeah. Okay. When, yeah. When, when you are resonating with another human being, you feel it. Uh, and when you're not, you feel it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. And then sometimes I'm, I'm sure this has happened in a juror jury box where someone literally falls asleep. Yeah. And then you're thinking, like, well, it's not my fault necessarily. I don't know what that person's day has been. I don't know what happened the night before. I don't know if they're a drinker. I don't know if their kids kept them up all night long. I don't know if, uh, you know, they've got a tremendous amount of uh, 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 stress. I don't know if they're actually a narcoleptic. Yeah. And again, it's learning to trust and not and not not be mad at them and not be mad at yourself, because even if you are being an ass and being boring, it, it doesn't. There's no. Uh, beating yourself up doesn't help anything No. at that point in time. Yeah. That's just I mean, adding more weight on the wrong side. Yeah. Uh, now, have you ever had in stand-up just a night where it just didn't click? Yeah, that happens to everybody. And you don't know why sometimes. Um, you're off your game for, a, you know, a myriad of different reasons. Uh, I, I can think of one. I can't even remember what city I was in. And it just happened to be a late show. And the audience was really light. Like that week, typically you do five shows on a weekend. You'll do one on Thursday, two Friday, two Saturday. And for whatever reason, I think it was the second show Friday, which typically like you can always look the second show Friday are the hard ones. It's the late show. People have worked all week. They're tired. And typically they started drinking early to go to the Friday night late show. So their attention is oftentimes suspect. So now if I go in there going, oh, Friday night late show. Well, now I'm already in a deficit. 
Uh, so I think, you know, my job is like, okay, let's be more on point. But this particular place, was I in Tampa? I can't remember. The audience of a, like a 300 seat house, I think I'd sold out or nearly sold out every show. But for that particular one, there's only a hundred people. You're like, what, what happened? And then you're going through your head like, oh, I'm not good. They don't, must not like me in this town. Who didn't get the word out? Was the press wrong? Like, is any of that serving me? No. So I went out there and I was, I was a little bit like, I was off in my head, like just trying to process like what, what went wrong? What, am I not enough right now? These things are going through your head. Like yeah. I, I must not be any good at this because no one showed up to see me. So then there was a bit of a desperation inside me that I wanted to win even more. Now, now, now the artist is like, God, I can see he wants something, but it ain't coming out. And then I then when something wasn't working, you get a little panic. And now you're really outside yourself. And then you try to make adjustments. And then you're now you've forgotten where you what bit you're even doing, where you are in the show. And then you try to go, well, fuck it. Let's just get to know each other. And for that reason, that night I said, you know, let's whatever. We're a small crowd. Let's get to know each other. But it's a bunch of this. Mm. And then then they just really weren't interested. I thought, oh, well, just get through the show then. I can't. Some nights you're just not going to have the win you're used to. Yeah, well, because at trials, I mean, both sides work really hard and someone loses. Someone yep. wins and someone loses. And a lot of a lot of what uh, a lot of what is the skill we have to learn in our profession is coming back from the loss. And so in getting right back in there and not playing scared and not trying too hard. So how do you OK, let's say you bomb the Friday night late show. You've got to go back out there the next night. You don't even get a few months to recover like we do. You go back out there the next night and you've got to be in the moment. You've got, how do you do it? How do you get back in there? And Well, you're going to do some mental prep, first of all, and make sure that whatever happened last night doesn't happen again. And then, you know, fortunately enough, you had a full house the next time. So now you're back on your game, you know, and you don't focus on what went wrong the night before you were look at all the times it's gone right. And I just make that assumption. Well, this is going to go well, number one, period. Right. Trust yourself, trust your audience. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I always tell people like there's that old adage of think of your audience as naked. Well, that doesn't really help because you're not going to, you can't trick your mind, but you can believe this. You've been an audience member. And when you're an audience member for a speaker, you always hope they do well. Yeah. You don't, you don't, Go into you're not an audience member hoping you come to see something bad. So they're already on your side. It's a bit different fractionally as a lawyer, but certainly they the audience the, the jury hopes you're competent. Yeah. And then and they want to do what's right. If if you believe that what your side is right, I mean most people go in there not with a preset agenda of saying we want to do something unjust right. uh, because we have some bias or prejudice. Most people aren't like that. And so right. Just like you, you have some jerks that go to a comedy show because they want to heckle the comedian. Yes. Most people go there because they want to be entertained. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. this, this, yeah. And then the, then you got to realize the person that's heckling is nervous too, and they just can't stand it, or they're drunk. Uh, but they just maybe they always wanted to be a comic, or they were, you know, hey Fred, you're 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 the funniest one in our group. Show them, show them. But yeah. you know, no, I'll say this. Uh, to people that won't shut up. No one came to see you. They came to see me. So that's strike one. You paid your money. I want you to stay here. But now you're bothering 
everybody in this club. And right now, a lot of people don't like you. So will you please just shut them? But that's if it keeps up. I have I have berated people because when they just won't stop and they're just disrespectful and then they say something, it's like, okay. And usually when they leave and they're flipping you off as they leave, the audience is applauding that these motherfuckers finally just got yeah. the heck out. So Delisa told me I had to curse at least once in this. Yes. Perfect. Jimmy no. Carr is a British comedian. Yes. He's just... I, I just, I don't know why I get off on this, but I watch this. He's got the best comebacks to hecklers and uh, ah. YouTube clips of just him with hecklers. And uh, unfortunately I can't say them on this show there. Yes. I could say motherfucker and stuff, but the yeah. little things he did would cause me to lose my audience, but they're really funny. Yeah. So if you're not easily offended, Google that, uh, YouTube yeah. that it's really, that, really that's funny a too, because the, the, the danger there could be, that's the act. Yeah. Is that part of his thing now? Is that just, part of his thing is he gets oh, okay. people to heckle him and then he goes and... Uh, yeah. Now, see, the, so. the beauty there, too, is there's only so many ways people are going to heckle. So you probably got 10 different shutdowns for every one you... Every person's got one. So yeah. you're loaded. It's not like you're thinking of the first time. You might be, you might have a bunch of arrows like, dude, I've got 20 things to say for what you just brought up. No, no, it's not a fair fight. And he's got some... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit bigrigbootcamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. So, uh, you know, back in August, uh, you worked with Delisi and you, you know, surprised our attorneys that came to our virtual big rig boot camp. And I have to confess, I've got nothing. You know, Delisi did all of that. Uh, I, I just showed up and magic happened. But, you know, how did that work? You know, how, how did all that happen? Well, uh, Delisi contacted me through a, another app where that people can, you know, celebrities can deliver a message on an app. And I had, I had uh, been asked because we're all in this, these protocols now. I'd been asked to, to speak to six hundred um, uh, uh, travel agencies with uh, this woman who was a mother at my kid's school, and she worked for this uh, airline. And I thought, oh wow, oh that's right. There's something that people can't participate in anymore, which are live events for just relief of their yeah. week. Part of their week is, oh, we know we have to change things up. And then when Delisi contacted me, I thought, oh, what's this for? Now, typically, see, if it's going to be a huge audience, because normally for this particular endeavor, it's just a one-on-one -on -one thing or just for a family. So if it's bigger, typically you go, well, I can't go, you know, sometimes people just ask you to do a straight up pitch for their company. It's like, well, wait a minute. You can't hire me at this price. I'm saying happy birthday. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah. come down to, to, to Larry's, you know, chicken shack <laughs> and Thursday we're promoting this like, well, hey, man. But so this was a different opportunity when I, I contacted her. And I, I, I had done another thing for uh, a, a, a Chris Sorensen, who's now my business partner, where he's he had an idea. It was going to be a Zoom where 100 people are participating. And he wanted me to do uh, my character. And he had an idea arranged of how he wanted to do it. And I told him, like, look, I'm, I was thinking there's something that's not being done 
in this particular virtual reality we're all living in. And um, so I did the thing for him and it worked really well. And like that, it brought relief to the normal day of like, God, I can't sit through another Zoom. And he told me, he said, I can get you a hundred of these. I said, I don't want to collect business cards. I want to do a business. And so he and I started talking about it. And then I think about a week later, I got contacted by Delisi and Chris and I talked and he said, hey, picture your idea of coming in and actually being in the movie, uh, in the movie, in the meeting, not just, you know, a pre-recorded message. And so we, that was that was an early one that we did. And then based on that, you know, and the grace that you guys have all shown us that and what worked and what didn't, because we're just figuring that thing out, too. It was, was fun. A, yeah, great, great, great. It was great. Great for me, too. And then you figure out like like just like you said, this is a different way of delivering the same type of thing. Now, how do you figure out how do you make it work? via this box. And I will say you're doing a great job because before David reached out to me to plan that, I had reached out to other comedians to try and do something and no one no one wanted to do the homework or think of it as from a business standpoint, it was just like a job, but they weren't thinking about why were we doing this? What's the purpose? Right. What, what do we want from this? So when I reached out to David and David was speaking to me, first of all, I wasn't even sure if it was going to be you. I was like, is this a prank? Is it really David? <laughs> um, but you were thinking about it the way I was thinking about it as, as a business professional who's trying to figure out how to navigate through these waters. And I really appreciate that. It stood out. Oh, good. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, what I've noticed is that in so many businesses, they need Zoom relief. Absolutely. And, you know, they need the morale booster and they need relief from what's always been going on. So how can we dedicate? And typically you tell me, but my understanding is half an hour is about what you can deal with before you need out. Or like you, you were doing that very long day and you just needed a break, something different to happen. Yeah. So, and so figuring out well, how can we dedicate something within the framework of what we know, which is actually a blessing. Because now you're not all over the place where we've got all these elements that everyone's going to be familiar with. It's going to be part of this call. So now we just familiarize ourselves within the framework of what's happening. And then you can use all of your, you know, acting and comedy abilities to bring it right here. It's it's a narrower channel. So it's it's not that hard. Like, like you said, just do the homework and you can have a win. Yeah. So you have you said you're you know you're you're doing this kind of stuff. You have a new business venture. Uh, what's yes? Uh, so I wanted to get do it right away, and yeah. and thankfully Chris Sorensen, a very bright guy, and he's done some a bunch of startups, and he's a real entrepreneur. And so we've been very methodical about how we put it together. So now we've got a whole team. We've got a head writer. Uh, we've got an, another writer. We've got a. a the organizational side locked down. And then now we just figured out, we're figuring a lot of this stuff out as we go. And we've engaged with um, a, a several of these event companies and we've got educated through them. And so now we're really ready to launch this out. And we've developed templates, what we call templates for each uh, style of, of, of meeting that there is. Uh, and we'll still be learning as we go. But there's one, you know, we've got templates for, for specific for, for the law community. And then for whatever other community, we can take these same um, uh, modems, if you will, uh, metrics, and then apply them 
to all kinds of different companies. Because at the end of the day, we're all just working together in one way or the other. So we collect these things, find the commonality of it, see what's what's can be made fun of or 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 um, what's familiar here and they could be used to the advantage that we all share. Because you know, first of all, we're all humans. That's a good place yeah. to start, right? So yeah, it's been a great education for me too, and we're really ready to launch it. We've done some other beta beta testing, I guess you call it, but it's been a new venture for me. So it's been I've been smart enough to surround myself with people to know a lot more about some things that I don't know, rather than just charging ahead and making it up as you go. Like let's do it purposefully to let the people number one to let the people on the other end know that are buying like Delisi. Let you know. I think that's the thing we talked about afterward because that that was a big part of it too. Yeah. And that you you lent your talents to us, saying what worked, what did, didn't, what's needed, what's not. But like that, going back to listening, uh, understanding, and then the number one thing I think you had said was you as a, as a planner need to know that you can trust it's going to be done. And you're going to get something out of it. So you're not, I think I came up with something recently. It was actually pretty good. Um, we want you to sleep the night. After you hire us, we want you to be able to sleep the night before the event. Because you know it's going to go well. But we hope you don't sleep the night after the event because it did go so well. <laughs> and it did. I mean, when you and I planned the seminar Zoom that you did with us, um, there was planning involved and yep. you did your homework and we asked each other questions. Um, but Michael didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> he just had to trust me and yeah. he trusted me because I trusted you and your team because you guys did a great job asking questions and we all were on the same track. We knew what our jobs were. Um, so it worked out great. And if yeah. someone was, Good. Yeah. If someone wants to look, you know, what's the new venture called? Oh, it's called Hey, Good Meeting. Yeah. Meeting. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and you've got, you've got someone you're doing that with too, right? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I like that. Obviously, I hope to have enough of these appointments that I couldn't possibly do them myself. So we're going to slowly build a roster of talent. Um, and I've been very fortunate, obviously, that I've been doing this for a very long time. And I've got a lot of talented friends that happen to be, you know, actors and comics and improvisers and everything else. Kate Flannery from The Office is a very good friend of mine. And she and I have worked together. My God, I've known Kate for 30 years. And she's just a wonderful human being. And we work together very well. So early on, and Delisha, you told us this, that it's better to have two people out here who can help facilitate it, mm -hmm. not just one from the entertainment side. Yeah. So, so everybody can pick up on something, make sure the ball always stays in the air. So I immediately thought of Kate Flannery because she, she does a lot of these things herself. And um, so I thought, let's, Hey, let's do this together. And so uh, yeah, Kate's going to be doing it. And I've got another roster of people and like that, I can't move too quickly. Cause I don't, you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to contact a bunch of your friends and say, I've got work for you. And they're like, where's that thing you said we were going to do? <laughs> yeah. So part of it is I have to be patient enough to not take on more work than I can handle. But once I see more work coming, then I can easily tell my, my peers, hey, I do have an opportunity for you. And this is the way it goes. You know, just like, you know, the workings of a trial. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Once we know more and more of what is going to happen from our perspective, our job doing these presentations, then I can inform my colleagues. All you have to do is come in and do this. Obviously, we have the framework of the things that we're going to present. Here's how you fit in. And then just use your talents. 
And if any of my listeners are involved in putting you know, together the big conventions and stuff like that, want to look into uh, possibly hiring hey, good meetings and working with you all, how do they, how do they find you? Well, I think we, we, like everybody else, we've got a website. Yep. Hey, good meeting. It was available. You know, you start, you're trying to think of uh, names this way or that way, you know, and you don't want to say, uh, uh, ha ha zoom. Cause then it sounds like a, a bad comedy club or laugh zoom. Cause that, you know, or, or Z laughs, then it sounds like a bad morning show on radio. So then it really kind of came down to looking in the area of, of, uh, what's available as a, as a, uh, domain. Yeah. And then, Hey, good meeting. We're like that's, that's good. Cause we want people to walk away thinking, Hey, good meeting. I like it. Yeah, that's awesome. So you have a website, heygoodmeeting.com. People mm-hmm. can go there if they want to reach out and try and book you for something like this. Yep. H-E-Y or H-A-Y? H-E-Y. H-E-Y, goodmeeting.com. Yeah. The <laughs> hey, 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 good meeting be for Missourians only. <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> Hey, Good Meeting is ready to help you and your law firm. Whether it's a monthly firm meeting or you just want to laugh with your employees or top referral partners, maybe you're wondering what to do instead of an in-person holiday party, you now have the opportunity to plan something unique and custom to you and your guests. With a roster of nationally recognized actors and comedians led by David Kushner and an Emmy-winning Saturday Night Live veteran team right by your side. Visit www.heygoodmeeting.com to find out more. Well, David, thank you so much. Uh, I risk you every success on your new venture, and I can't wait to see uh, your next movie or TV show. Uh, you know, the you showing up to our boot camp. I didn't realize uh, when I saw Anchorman, that was a guy's night. And so my wife had never seen it. And so when I'm telling her that you're a going to be on and, and she's not getting some of the stuff right. we watched you know both movies that night and she's right. she, she you brought so much joy you know all these years later uh okay. that she hadn't seen it before so uh yeah that's the interesting thing too because my characters are quite you know brash and and you know could say some things that aren't good they, they, your wife might be like well, you hired that guy she's married to me <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, fantastic. Uh, Hey, man, a pleasure. Great to see you both again. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. 
If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.